Welcome everybody. Let's take the opportunity to, to spend a little bit of time learning some Torah on this special Hanukkah. I would, um, I would like to start off just by uh, thanking those who are sponsoring this morning. We're, we're learning for uh, today's year sponsored by Dr. Aaron and Hendel Grushka upon the occasion of Hendel's uncle's yard site, Bernard Zalemeyer, Baruch ben Avram Isaac, Olav HaShalom, also, we, we, are, uh, we are learning today the Shir sponsored by Rabbi and Eva Frankel for the alias Neshama of Rabbi's father, whose yard site is today. Mordechai Avram ben Aryeh Halevi, who no doubt will continue to get much nachas from the children, the grandchildren, and the great-grandchildren. We're going to be learning today. So just, uh, just you know, we also, just, just to process, we also all are just in shock at this point in time, just from... Just, you know, the last year and, and two months have given us unprecedented exper- attacks which haven't just seem to continue and continue. And um, so as we just try to process this through Hanukkah, well, it's true that we haven't seen these kind of things in this country here heretofore. We have really never seen this in this country. But as Jews, we certainly have seen this around the world, unfortunately. This has been a pattern which we've seen elsewhere many, many times. And, um, and so one thing just, just to, to think about, there's so many things we need to do, and security, and speaking to our government officials, you know, in our Shul Baruch Hashem, we have, we have security guards, in, and, we've, and, and we've spoken to our officials, and our officials have just formed a talk for, task force in Nassau County for anti-Semitism. The people are working on these things, there are, uh, but at the same time, one thing just to be aware of, one, one thing we can learn from is that Dr. Abramson just gave a, a, lecture, a lecture on Jewish history about Hanukkah. And long before the Greeks came in and we were fighting Greeks, we were fighting Jews. Jews were fighting Jews. And this, this group of Jews were fighting that group of Jews. And it was only, the Greeks only came in when the, the fighting among the Jews grew so much that they brought the authorities in and that's when, the thing, that's when things started happening. You should just realize that when we talk negatively about other Jews and we put that in the media and we post that, it's not just Jews who are reading that. There's many, many other people who read the, the, the slander we make, whether it be an irreligious Jew who's in Congress and we talk about them negatively. Whether it be a right-wing Hasidic group that we talk about in, we, in our memes, in our, in our, when we start talking about this, we're not the only audience. There are lots of other people who are excited and, very, and are salivating as they see, the, as you see, you see us insulting each other. And, that's, and unfortunately, it's a breeding ground, not a cause. We're not the cause, Chas Shalom, for this, but it's a breeding ground for, for, further, for further hate. One of the lessons of Hanukkah is, is that the Greeks were second in the battle. The first step of the battle was the Jews against the Jews, and we slandered and killed each other before the Greeks even came in. With that, and that's something we can do. That's something which we, can, we are in control of um, to, be able to, to be able to fix, to be able to do a little better on. And Hashem Yishmor Alein, Hashem should guard us from these terrible, terrible human beings who, uh, who feel that they can come into our house of worship, into our shuls, and uh, wreak havoc. Hashem Yishmor Aleinu. Um, let's, let's learn a little bit to, today on the, on the topic of Hanukkah itself. Um, and I, I realized that last week we spent a lot of time, a lot of time spending, um, uh, we did a lot of, a lot of material, and we didn't get so much depth and pers- um, perspective into one concept. So today we're going to do one basic concept, one basic concept, and try to mine the depths of that idea to a fuller degree. Um, let's, let's start at the very beginning. So I'd like to explore the thought process of um, Rav Moshe Shapiro, of Blessed Memory, just recently, um, the, the, some of his Talmudim have been publishing Sorim in his name. One of them is called Shuvi Venecheze, and they just released the Shuvi Venecheze on Hanukkah and Purim. So we're, we are in good fortune. We're able to be able to learn from his Torah 
in a, in a most remarkable way. Here's, here's the argument that, that he makes. I just, it, it, it goes into a very, very complex and very unusual story that occurs, which requires a little bit of attention. The starting point is a pasuk in Zechariah, where Zechariah is talking about the end of times, the battle of against nations. And he says, in Soswan, Yehuda, I have drawn Yehuda tight, Keshes, uh, uh, as a bow, Milesi Ephraim. I have, I have, uh, I have, so to speak, filled up Ephraim for Arati Bonayach Tzion Abonayach Yavon Vesamtich Kecherev Gibor, and I arouse you, uh, the, your sons, O Zion, against Yavon, and make you like a warrior's sword. So, in a certain sense, the the imagery over here is that the sword of success against Yavon is what, Bnei Tzion, is the sons of Zion, which is fascinating because Tzion and Yavon, in fact, are almost the same word. Just the one is a tzadi yud vav nun. Another one is a yud vav nun. So apparently the Bnei Tzion is the antidote for the idea of Yavon, of Greece. What does that mean? How is Zion the answer to Greece exactly? Yes, it happens to be that Tzion is, what's the, well, what does Zion mean? Zion is another name for, which depends, it has a few iterations in history. But apparently in Tanakh we use it as referring to Yerushalayim. Technically speaking, Har Tzion is the adjacent mountain to, to, to Har Habayas. But nonetheless, today in the old city, that's, it's all really one continuum. And we, Tzion is another word for Yerushalayim, Zion. Right? So I, I don't know about all these, these, these folks and Zionism is racism and this whole business. But the, I don't know, Zion is biblical to me. So the last time I looked, the, the, the Torah talks about Zion a whole bunch of times. Long before there are any movements or isms. This is, this is, this is, this is, this is, this is Bible. This is God's word. Right, so apparently Zion is the antidote for Yavon in the battle of the end of the end of days. What does that mean exactly? How does the one answer the other? This is this is this is precisely a very very fascinating discussion. So what we're going to do is we're going to just do, learn through one Gemara today. We're going to do less text than usual. Just try to try to think about these ideas in in, in a in a vacuum. This is a story which occurs is to be found at the end of Maseches Tamid on Daf Lamed Beis. I'm out of going over to Amud Beis. And it is a very unusual story. It is a story which clearly has metaphoric import. And there's something much more than meets the eye which is going on. Let's try to unpack this Gomorrah together. So the Gomorrah goes as follows. This is a story about Alexander the Great, Alexander the Macedonian. Very powerful young man. He, uh, at the age of 20, uh, held the reins to the Greek Empire. And within 10 short years, was able to expand that empire into Asia, Asia, Asia Major down into the, into the northern parts of Africa, conquering the entire Middle East, Syria, Iraq, the whole area. Everything was under the Greek Empire within 10 years. At the age of 30, he had conquered most of the land the Greek Empire was able to control. Very, very powerful person. I should just put a map on the back of the, on the last page over here just to get a sense of how far it is. Greece is all the way in Europe. And Macedonia is on the very far left. He went all the way eastwards. All the way eastwards over here. You can just see how far it went, even on, um, on, into India. That's how far he went, and that's, this, that's a young man in his 20s. He was obviously an extre- extremely powerful and charismatic individual who was able to marshal the forces necessary to conquer the known world at that time. So in this, this Gomorrah is describing this, uh, the conversations that he has with various sages. So the first part of this Gomorrah, which we're not going to do today, is a conversation that he has with the, the Zikne HaNegev. He has this philosophical conversation with the elders of the, uh, of the South, which is understood to mean the sages of, of Judaism. And then there's a continuation. This is the continuation of the story. Here's how it goes. Obviously, there's a lot more than meets the eye. Amalohan, he says to them, to the, to the elders, 
I want to go to the area to to Africa. Um, you are not able to go there because there are going to be mountains of darkness, which will be in your way. He says, I do want to go. He says, no, nothing has been impossible for me up till now. What do I need to do to get across them? So they said, Amrulay, I see Khamri Dubai bring Libyan donkeys, the Parshi Bahavra, the I see Kibur de Masne, the Kotar Bahai Gisot de Chiasis Nakatas Begavayu Vasis Libasrach. So what you've got to do is you've got to take these donkeys, which are used to traveling through complicated mountainous regions, and bring ro- rope with them and tie the one end to the one side so that you, as you go, you're able to find your way back. Because most people who go through these mountains, these dark mountains, are get, get lost or not able to penetrate them. So if you have this coil of rope, which is unfurling, you're able to, to find your way back after they make their way through. So it's interesting. By the way, the, 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 those who are in the world of academia are going to try to explain, well, are these the Apennines Mountains in Turkey? Like, where is exactly is it that he was trying to cross that he wasn't able to? Why is the Libyan donkeys the answer to it? There's a lot of interesting discussions to be had on an academic level. But we're going to push further into, into the story. The Gulagoria says, This is what he did. He came to a, a, to a city that was full only of women. So he tried to communicate in his regular way of communicating, which was waging war. So he, uh, you know, some, some people, you know, they say for a hammer, everybody's a nail. Right, so Alexander the Great, he arrives in the city, you know, he, his way of dealing with people is, let's, let's wage war. So they said to him, Amrulain, they responded, It's a lose-lose campaign. You kill us, we'll say, the, the news report will be that you, you murdered a, a city of women. You get killed, they will say that you got killed by women. So now, again, this is in the, in the day where there's less women warriors, and this is, this is, this is seen as a... As a terrible insult. So Amalohan, I see Lee Nahama. I see Lee Nahama de Dahava, Apsoira de Dahava. So he asked for bread. They gave him this golden loaf of bread on a golden table. So then the Gomorrah continues. By the way, this is where the Ahmad Bey switches on, exactly where our Ahmad Bey switches on. He says, Amalohan, he says, Mi Achli Inshi Nahama de Dahava. So he says, Do people eat bre- golden bread here? So Amrulay, Allah in Nahama Bayes, they have a lot of Basra, Nahama le Mechal. So you didn't, you didn't have bread where you came from? That you came here to get bread? So this is the end of the conversation, it sounds like. Because then Kinofik, as he was leaving the city, he inscribed on the gate of the city, I'm Alexander the Macedonian. And I was not wise until I came to this city of women. And then they gave me advice to understand the way to go. Right, so this is na- right naturally, right? So, <laughs> right, this is a natural progression in the masculine state of affairs. So, nonetheless, um, so this is this is what uh, this is what um, Alexander the Great um, says. Very very obscure story, as you can see. The story gets a little more obscure. And the last part's actually the part that we're going to spend a little more time focusing on. Kishakil Vaasi, as he was going, Ayasivahu Mayana. He was sitting by a particular stream, a particular um, um, spring. He was eating bread. He had these salted fish that were on his bread, right? He opened up his, his pilchards, right? His little can of sardines, whatever it was that he was eating. 
So what happened was, is that he, was, he washed his hands from the salt, from the extra salt oil on the fish, and he saw that in the spring, that, that suddenly these fish had reicha. Now, some explain that this means to say that they started, that this fragrance, fragrance were being dipped into the spring. Some actually explain the Rosh, this Gemara says, no, it means novabul rucha, which means they woke up. They, they became alive. These fish now started swimming away. His fish that was supposed to be on his sandwich were now swimming downstream. Right? So he realized that this is no, no regular string. Spring, this is, this is in fact a river which is sourced in Gan Eden. In the, the, the primordial Gan Eden. Some say he washed his face in them. What that means is that gave him his success. Some said they were smart enough. He realized that he needed to get to the entrance of Gan Eden. So he, he, try, he tracked the spring up through the mountains to get to its source. And he got to the gates of where it was coming from. Ramakola Bava. He said, knock, knock, let me in. Right, please let me into the gates. Amrule, a voice emanated and said, Zeashar la Hashem. What's the end of that pasuk? Tzadikim Yachuba. So he says, sorry, sorry. <laughs> we do not have the visa, my friend. Right, so Alexander was not able to enter into Gad Eden. So what happens? I'm a king, I'm very important. Hovoli midi. At least give me something. Give me an heirloom. Give me a token. Show me something from behind this gate. Yavile Gulgulosa Chada. They gave him a sphere, an orb. Aisa am Asye Takle Lukuli Dahavo Kaspodidei Bahade Loihawi Miskale. He put it on the scale and he put all the rest of his gold and silver, all the, the troves of his treasure on the other side and it, they would not outweigh this, this orb that was given from Ganadin. Strange story. What's going on here? The Gemara explains. Omar Lahon, he said to the sages, My high. <laughs> What's going on? So Omar Lahon, This is not an irregular orb. This is the, the eyeball of a human being. It's an eyeball of a, of a boss of a dumb, of a, of a human. That's never satiated. What does that mean? Think about what it means. Is that the, all the gold and silver in the world will not weigh as much as the human eye desires. That's what, the, that's what this eye is. That was heavier than all the gold and silver he already had. Shakli, he says, how do we know this is true? So he responded to him, Shakli clearly off of covered with dirt. And what happens? The alt takle, and immediately the, 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 the scales shifted, and immediately the gold shift, uh, shifted down in the eyeball went upwards. What do you think it means by putting, putting the, 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 the dust on it? Cover the eyes. So you cover the eyes, and the eyes are no longer able to see, so maybe it now it's, it's you sort of covering it. Another aspect is, is what do all happen to all eyeballs? They all get buried. They all get buried. Right, so when you realize the end of the, the, end of the story, then, it gets, then, then, then the, the, the delusions of grandeur suddenly, suddenly get, get, get a little lighter. That's what the Gomorrah seems to be saying. So this is a very unusual story. It's a very obscure story of Alexander the Great. And in order to understand Greece, you need to be able to understand the story. So let's, let's try, to, try to understand the depths of the story. What we're going to do is we're going to follow through an, ide- an ideology um, uh, in, in, Greek, uh, in, in Greek thought, which, is, uh, which appears in a very interesting argument. There's a debate. There's a debate which is had among the philosophers and certainly among the Greek philosophers 
about the origins of this world. So let's put this Gemara on, on the back burner. Let's try to understand this, the, the, this, this debate for a moment. Here's how it goes. The Rambam was a great Talmud of, uh, of uh, the Rambam wrote Mishnah Torah. He was the, one of the greatest halachic disasters of all time. At the same time, he was also, study, uh, he was also a, a student of philosophy. And one of the people he looked up to as one of the greats in history was Aristotle himself. Aristotle, as the Rambam talks about it many, many times. The Rambam agrees with many of the thoughts of Aristotle. He believed that he was one of the people closest to Nevoah. However, there were a number of things that he disagreed with when it came to Aristotelian logic. And one of them was the notion of what's called Kadmus Ha'olam. Kadmus means is, is the following. Greek philosophy argued that the world always was. You see the world as it is now. There was never a starting point. It always was. They proved it through the philosophical proofs, and that's what Aristotle believed. They believed in what was called, uh, what they called, is that the, the way it's described is, um, what's the, the exact, uh, the, oh, they called it Olam Kadmon. Right, that the world was. The world just, uh, just was. Now, of course, that precludes any true uh, Torah thought, because the Torah says, Bereshis Baralekim. There was a beginning. And so, therefore, the Ramam spends many, many a chapter in Mori disproving his, so to speak, paragon in terms of philosophy, Aristotle trying to explain, to explain why it is true that the world must, in fact, have had a beginning. And now we, we think this is obvious, but this is certainly not obvious, and certainly for many, many centuries, people believe that the world always was. So the Rambam goes on and, uh, to, to, to bring a, to a number of proofs, and he says, I'll bring you a proof that will deflate any proofs that Aristotle will, break, will, will, will marshal to his cause. And here's, here's the way that Rambam describes it. The Rambam says that anything you have in, a, in its state right now is not going to be the same nature as it at the beginning and the origination of that idea. So as an example, so he gives a really strange marshal. He says, imagine that you had a child that was born, and a few months after nursing, after the baby was sufficiently weaned, the mother passes away, and then the baby grows up with a, is, is on a ship with men. The ship is shipwrecked on an island. And that child now grows up on this island only among men. The child reaches the teenage uh, age and he asks the, you know, the shipmates who are with him, says, tell me, tell me something. How is it that children come to be? Right? So how does it, there was no TV, no billboards. <laughs> It was much, um, a much more, it was a much, much, much easier society to educate children in. And so therefore, they said to him, well, you know, this is, what happens is that the child grows in the womb of the mother, and it's in this state of growth for many, for many months, and it's fed and it's sustained, and finally it emerges to, to, to the world. So he says, so one second, so get, let's get this right. So he says, so this, this child is now subsumed in, what, is, what was that? So he says, it's, it's in liquid. So how, how's he breathing? No, well, it's getting sustained. Well, how's he eating? Well, there's this umbilical cord. And so to this child, to this, this person who's grown up, who's never seen a woman, who's never had the experience of understanding the greater world, now you're explaining this thing, so I don't understand. Anybody who's in that environment would die immediately. Right? It doesn't make sense. There's no, doesn't, the logic doesn't, doesn't hold. You take away oxygen, you take away sustenance, they're gone. So the Ramos is like this. Aristotle. Your fine and wonderful logical proofs are all based on one basic and faulty assumption. And that is, is that you're looking at the world right now and you're extrapolating backwards based on what you see, for, or see in the lab or you see in your philosophy right now. 
But the Rambam says things change when you're at the beginning of the state of development of an idea. Similarly, when it came to the world, yes, it's true, it looks like that the world over here is simply the same constant as it was beforehand. However, at the beginning, things change. The way that things uh, uh, develop at the, the initial point of development is very different to the way it is, to the way it, to the way it is now. That's what the Rambam says in Morin Nevochim. That's that's his one of his. He dedicates chapter. I mean, Ischelik Bay's Perik Yudzayin just to discussing this uh, the, this idea, and therefore the Rambam says that that in fact Aristotle was incorrect. Now. There's one thing to be, be aware of as a footnote, and that is that the Rambam spent so much time trying to disprove Aristotelian notions of Olam Kadmon, of this world which existed forever. It is, as a footnote, it is interesting that that science of Aristotle has long been disproved. In 1964, on May 20th, to be spe- specific, um, two radio astronomers, Robert Wilson and Arno Panzias, in Bell Labs in New Jersey, kept on noticing that they were using a very large satellite dish and they kept on getting this background radiation. There was this, this white noise in the background and they thought that maybe it was the pigeons and they tried removing the pigeons and they tried cleaning the, the, the dish and then they, the birds kept coming back and they actually, in the end of the day, had to take them away and then try to kill the pigeons and they kept on finding that there was this background radiation. And they finally realized that it was based on the prediction that there would be a background radiation to the Big Bang, which means to say that the world actually had a starting point. What the Rambam would have given to be able to see that science itself disproved its own theories in the beginning, the Greek ideas that the world was Alam Kadmon, that rather the world actually had a starting point. This, in fact, so science itself finally arrived at the conclusion, sort of, you know, against all of its arrogance, that the world had a starting point. But the Rambam's point, point over here is, is don't assume that because it is, therefore it always was. And the Rambam was absolutely 100% correct. Even its science itself has to accept that now that we arrived humbly at this conclusion, which is universally accepted today. Let's come back for, for a brief moment to understand one, uh, to understand one thing. Who was Aristotle's student? Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great learned from Aristotle to the age of 16. Okay, which means, and, and Alexander wasn't just a great warrior. Alexander was a great philosopher. Wherever he came, he brought Greek philosophy. He brought Greek culture to the entire known world. Which means that part of the philosophy of Aristotle is, is part of the philosophy of Aristotle is to be found in the actions and in the ideas of Alexander himself, Alexander the Macedonian. What this Gemara seems to be arguing is the following basic idea. Is what was happening over here? Alexander the Great was searching ultimately for what? What was he looking for in this Gemara that was so, so incredibly important to him? He was looking for the, origin. the star origin. Which is why when he finds the stream, he knows that there's something unusual about this world. There's, there, there, there are irregularities in the system. He is trying to find source. So what does he do? He goes and he traces all the irregularities to the place of source, which is the Bava de Gan Eden, the gate of Gan Eden. He tries to gain access to that to be able to, in a certain sense, extrapolate the ideas that he sees here and tries to understand what's going over there on the terms that he has over here. And they say, sorry, you don't have access. You don't you simply don't have access to it. So what what what, what happens? What do they do to him? What do they do? They throw they throw him. An eyeball. What's what, what's the what's the the logic of this of this eyeball for a moment? Well, let's just, let's just understand something for for a moment. To just uh, just to, to take it one step backwards, even before we get back to this, just to, to appreciate this. The way this is expressed in Torah thought is that the world. We, we learned about this a little bit last week and, and, and numerous times. 
is that the world the world is created with a yud and a hay, right? So there's that notion of yud is this nakura, is this idea of we'll call it sum total of matter idea, and it expands in in various directions. That's the hay, the the two axes of de, of development. That was a little bit of it that we were looking about lo, looking at last week through the words of the Maharal. Um, the way that the way this is generally understood, the way that this is this is described is that the world. All the world is encapsulated in this notion of this one dot. What's, what's the word for like a dot or a mark in Hebrew, by the way? Nekudah. Nekudah, another way of the word for it is also tzion. A tzion is a mark. Isn't it interesting? So where, where's the world coming from? It comes from one place, which is tzion. Where's the centerpiece of tzion, just out of interest? So where, where, do we, where, do we, where do we look to? Yerushalayim. Where, where specifically in Yerushalayim? Where, where, where it comes down to the Bezimidosh. Where in the Bezimidosh? The Kodesh Kodashim. Now there's an interesting thing that happens when it comes to the, to the Kodesh Kodashim. And that is that the Gemara tells us in Baba Barsha's Daft Tzaditesh that look, when the, we know how wide the room was on either side. Right? You know the length and the breadth of that room. We also know the, the, the halachas of how long and how wide how the iron had to be. But were you to go in and you were to take a tape measure, and you were to measure from the one wall to the edge of the Aaron, and you were to measure from the other wall of the Aaron to the, uh, to the, uh, the far wall, you would find that those two distances equaled the width of the room. But, if you were to make the Aaron even a fraction of an inch shorter than it should be, that Aaron would, be de- would, be, would, be de- uh, would not be able to be able to be used as a halachic as the kosher Aaron, which means the, the Aaron had a measure, but when you measured it in the space, it no longer featured a measure, which is what leads the Gemara to say that the Aaron ain't min hamida. The Aaron is no longer part of this world, of the, of the measures in this world. I Meaning you looked at it, it looked like it was there, but when you measured the spaces, it really wasn't there, which means it occupied a space which wasn't a space, because that's precisely the point. And that, uh, this is the way it works, is that at the wormhole, in a certain sense, at the wormhole, which is really the coalescing or the connection of between two universes, the physical and the spiritual world, which is this makom called Zion, this mark, which is the space where everything is contained in it, irregularities happen. There's the, you, you see through the space things which are not, not necessarily an expression of the confines and logic and rules of this world, which is why the Aaron is Eina Min Amida. You'd walk into this space and you're actually seeing into a spiritual domain, which is expressed by the fact that it's the source. If we understand that Zion is the source of everything else, then yes, source differs from output. The Nakuda differs for the two legs of the hay as it expands outwards into reality that we see it, which is precisely the misunderstanding of Greek philosophy. If I see it here, if I see it now, if I can measure it, then I can extrapolate it backwards to say it always must have been that way. Whereas at the source, says the Rambam, at the source of Zion is where it is irregular. It does not follow the rules of this world in space and in time, which is what Beratius says. That's how it works. Which means, let's come back to a very fascinating point. What happens? He's, Alexander the Great is trying to find source. He's trying to go back and to be able to explain everything within the confines of the human very limited logic and senses. And they defy him. And they say, you cannot enter into this place. So he asks for something and they throw him out this orb, this, this, this human eyeball. Think about this for a moment. Why is it? Why, this is a Gomorrah that I always found so fascinating. Here you have the human eye and, and ironically it weighs more than anything in the world. All his treasuries. 
will, are, are outweighed by this eyeball. Why? What's, what's the message again? Beyond space. So the idea is just psychologically for a moment. The idea is psychologically, you're never going to be satisfied. You're never going to be satisfied. You're going to get the new car lease and in three weeks time, you're going to want the next version. Right, you're going to get the iPhone 10 and you're going to soon be on the waiting list for iPhone 11 XS. Right, whatever it is, you're never going to, we know this feeling, right? We go, we, once we get to the next one, we, it's, it, it, we, we want the next one. That a person, as Kualas says, a person will die with only half of their tithe abiyadoi. We never go into, it never, it never amounts to anything. What was the message? Think about this. Psychologically speaking, it's because we were never satiated. But spiritually, why is that? Why is the human being made like that? Why can we never get satiated? The Midrash says very simply, is because the part of the soul, which is the part of the human being, which is feeling lack of satiation, which is feeling incomplete, is not a physical reality of the person. It's their spiritual reality. The example the Midrash gives is imagine that a princess marries a poor villager, they meet at the bar, they strike it off, they fall in love, and finally they get married and she comes back to his humble hovel. And he wants to treat her magnificently. And he goes and he gets, you know, sweet potatoes from the backyard and he roasts them over the fire. Right? The greatest delicacy he can produce. It's never enough. Why is it never enough? Because she's used to dining on seven courses. She's used to having three sets of knives and five sets of forks just for the amount of courses at a regular meal. There's nothing which he could ever produce, no matter how sweet tasting or how edifying, that will ever satiate her. Why? Because she comes from a different world. The neshama comes into this world. And the neshama does not want to come into this world. It is, it is made from, it is hewn from a different rock. It comes from a spiritual reality. It is forced into a body. And then it has to complete a certain mission in this world. And what happens is, is that there's a certain sense of lack that this neshama always experiences. And then what happens is, is we as confused human beings think that if we just give it another iPhone, it'll be enough. Right? Just another car lease. Maybe, maybe. And then what happens is we never say shit because we're addressing, we're, we're giving a technological answer to a spiritual ailment. That's what's really happening over here. Which is why the only way to really feel gratified is when we actually give it what it needs, which is spiritual refinement, but that's much finer and more ethereal, which is why we don't gravitate towards that. It's like, I have deal to the spiritual gym. It's very hard to get to the gym. It's very hard to go there. We know it's important, but it's very hard to get there. We need these things. It's good for us, but we don't do that. We instead, it's much easier to get the mac and cheese, right? So in the, in the end of the day, that's what ends up happening. So, so now, so, so what, 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 do, what, is, what, what's, what is the, the, the gatekeepers of Gan Eden do? They throw out this eyeball and they say, you can't understand. You're not able to understand the earliest source of the world because the earliest source of the world is moving on a wavelength, which is spiritual. And the fact that you want so much is an indication is that you don't understand that domain dimension of the human being. You view a human being simply as a cut and dry primate which is evolving gradually at a certain point to want only certain things. And you're going to keep feeding it those things, but you're never going to understand the source of why the human being hewn from a different quarry would want all these things. And that's the answer that Alexander the Great was given, which is why he can never access Gan Eden. It's the answer as well as the bar from, the, from, from access. is because you can't understand that, that's why you can't have access. And because you don't have access, that's why you, you're not going to be able to understand it. And yes, it is, all, it is very 
sometimes it is, it, is, it is very tempting to look at this world and to be able to measure this world and to be able to predict this world and to talk about the weather that's going to be and the stocks which are going to be. And we take our little systems and we try to make our systems into future systems and we feel very grand with ourselves. And Alexander the Great still simply can't understand it because he can't gain access to source. And if you think about this for a moment, it goes even further. That means to say, source itself ultimately also means, origin also means destination, if you think about this. If I can fully understand my source as a human being, then I can understand where I'm supposed to be going. If I can't understand where I come from, then I certainly can't understand where I'm supposed to be going as either. What he was missing was the beginning and the end of the story because all he measured was what he could see and all he predicted was what he could imagine he could see in the future and in the past. And that's the, and that's the, the, the sad state of affairs in most of the human world today. Another place we see this is the fact that what is the name in halacha of a gravestone is also the notion of tzion. Tzion literally means a mark or a dot. And that's the idea, is the place of origin. If we can understand the nakuda, that, that place where we start from, that tzion, that if we can understand that, then we can understand where we were going, which is why the elders of the Negev told Alexander to cover that eyeball with dust. If you can understand where you're coming from, if you understand that we come from something higher, and that's why we express all these spiritual yearnings, then you can surely understand where we are going to, which is the dust then you can understand what the point and motivation of this entire life is, which is what he was missing. It is also interesting that it's pointed out that the gematria of Yovon of Greece is in fact the same gematria as Yosef. And you say, well, what does that mean? You know, what connection is that? It's interesting that Yosef was a kind of person who was able to overcome his natural inclinations. He was able to act not just like an animal. When, when tempted by physical lust, he was a human being who was able to express his spiritual component in such a way that he acted in a completely counterintuitive way and was able to become really a human being who comes from a higher quarry, who comes from an olam elyon, who is not necessarily subjugated just to what is and what looks like and what would be predicted based on human urges. And that's what Yosef is, who is able to super, supersede what Yovon really is, which is Yosef. Which is we live the world that we can measure. We live the world that we can see. It's so to speak, the way I, I try to sometimes give an example is, you know, it's, it's, it's like you go to a waterfall and you have a thimble. And so what you do is you have a thimble and you say, this is the mighty Niagara Falls. Right? Now, don't do it. <laughs> they, they won't allow you to get that close in the, in the maid of the mist. But nonetheless, right? so you come out and you say, this is the mighty, the mighty waterfall. And you're like, well, that's as much as the waterfall you could measure because you had a thimble. Right? Let's, let, let's, let's go now and, and, uh, and get a bathtub. Right? Let's now go and get a dam. And now we can start talking about the power of the waters of Niagara. But as much as your measuring equipment is limited, is the limited outcome of the experimentation you're going to be doing. And that's where, that's where the human minds fall short. I can experiment, I can look at, but I can look to it, and I can even predict backwards and forwards, but I can never understand what the source, and therefore the, uh, the ultimate destination of humankind is, because it, was, it comes from a different place. That's what the Gemara seems to be saying. Which is why, just one fascinating last, last point, and that is, is that the Rokeach, who's uh, one of the very fascinating Kabbalistic Rishonim, says that uh, the reason why we have 36 candles on Hanukkah, the actual candles themselves, is because there were 36 hours between the time of the sixth day till the end of Shabbos, which is a certain sense of the parts of creation where humanity existed, representing ultimately the organos, that, that sort of hidden light, hour by hour, those 36 hours which we light. And the idea is, is that on Hanukkah we light the light to remind ourselves a little bit of where we come from. 
The fact that we come from something a little more grand, a little more powerful, a little more ethereal than what you can put into a test tube, what you can measure in any meter, whether it be an altimeter, barometer, a, a thermometer, whatever m m a meter you're going to put into it, our source is much beyond the tools of measurement. And this is perhaps what the Gemara is saying. And this is one of those nakudos, which is why, what does the Apostle in Zachariah say? What is the antidote to Yavon? Is Tzion. Is remember that there is a mark, there is a place from which it all originated. And that place is different to the, the formula that you're seeing now. I'd like to just leave a question. And that is, why is it that in fact the word Yavon is Yud Vav Nun? And why is it that that's the line extending itself? I don't want to for further thought as to why that should be the expansion. Anyways.